Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, growth. Are we kidding ourselves? In economics, we're obsessed with growth. We need it to survive, apparently. The faster the growth, the better off we all are. But is that really the case? And if so, why is growth slowed? And what if it slows even more? What if we never see high economic growth ever again? Like Japan, for example. Uh, We'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, there's a concern now that maybe Europe isn't going to see the uh, sort of growth that the US seems to be claiming, that perhaps the ECB will continue with its QE, its quantitative easing program, for a while longer, with annual growth of the Eurozone economy now at 2.5%. It's uh, not got much above 3% since the financial crisis, and the UK economy... Well, that's trundling along at 1.2% growth. Even in the US, GDP has slowed from an annual rate of 2.9% in the final quarter of 2017 to 2.3% in the first quarter of this year. But does it really matter? I mean, Steve, I mean, we're seeing now just about everywhere near record lows for uh, unemployment. We're not exactly starving. In fact, we're eating too much, if the truth be known. And Japan has managed to survive with growth just above zero, sometimes below it. So, uh, you know, and they're still here. So do we do we focus too much on the importance of economic growth, do you think? Absolutely. Um, but the part of the reason why we do that is because economic theory has never really understood what causes growth in the first place. And therefore, any of the potential constraints to growth or the issues, the problems with growth, haven't even been part of the theory in the, fir- in the very first instance. It's all about just getting, you know, as high a level of economic growth as possible. And that's been the only scorecard that counts. Right. And why is it so slow? Why is it slowing now? What have we missed out? The people who are looking at this is the <laughs> important indicator. Where have they gone wrong? Well, there's at least two factors that are part of it. And uh, one of them is, of course, my favorite pro- subject level of private debt. Yeah. Uh, because... One thing which comes out of my modelling, which has turned up in the data as well, is the higher the level of uh, private de- rate of growth of private debt, the lower the rate of economic growth. And uh, part of the reason for this is simply that uh, you, 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 the, pe- the people who are fundamentally responsible for economic growth in the sense of enabling it to be possible to make more physical uh, widgets every year than the widgets the year before are capitalists who make investment decisions in building factories. And the higher the amount of money going to the banking sector – Whatever way it gets there, ultimately there's less money available for actual building of factories by capitalists, less, you know, less, in, less investment in new technology and so on, and you get a lower rate of growth. And I get it in, in quite a simple way. I get that of, in a very paradoxical way in some ways. I get that of an incredibly simple models where I, where I have capitalists wishing, desiring to invest more. So you know, a more aggressive capitalist class wanting, having a higher reaction to a, a higher rate of profit in terms of how much they're willing to invest rather than the lower one. Even though it would give you, uh, you would think, a higher rate of economic growth, it ends up giving a higher amount to the bankers and a lower rate of economic growth. Mm. And that, again, seems to be what's turned up in the real data. The higher level of private debt has got the lower the rate of economic growth has got over time. That's factor one, but it's not the only factor. 
Right. So just on factor one then. So, I mean, is that the, the, the situation with Japan then? Why is Japan sitting with such slow growth and has done for so long? That's not because of private debt, is it? Yes, it is. They were the first one. They were the first canary in the coal mine. They, right. Japan, I, I, I hope you're old enough to remember what they used to call the, uh, uh, the bubble economy in Japan. You remember yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, 1980 to 1990, and what happened uh, from 19, all, for, all the way from not the end of the Second World War through to 1970, um, one of the distinctive features of Japanese capitalism was what they call the Kiritsu system, where uh, you didn't just have you know, separate uh, corporations in ultimately car manufacturing. Of course, they didn't have it to begin with, but steel manufacturing, food, textiles, etc., etc. You had groups which had, to some extent, a history in the feudal structure of Japan, which were called keretsus, which were agglomerations of different industries. And they had their, as part of each keretsu, there was a bank. The Mitsubishi Bank was one bank, there's uh, numerous others. And that bank would actually effectively act like an equity investor in the, in the firms in that group. So that would provide loans, not because your application was better than somebody else's application, but because part, you were part of the same industrial group and you simply, the Mitsubishi Bank lent to the Mitsubishi Keretsus. Um, so consequently, the level of private debt in Japan was much higher than the level of private debt in Europe or America, let's say. But that reflected the fact that these Keretsu was sort of a, a semi-equity concept rather than just um, um, private banks providing money to independent private uh, private uh, non-financial corporations. Then in the 1980s, the whole of Japan went crazy with share market speculation and property speculation. On the one hand, you had uh, the Nikkei getting to the stage where seven of the world's ten biggest banks were all Japanese, and wasn't that a fantastic indicator? Mm. Um, and, and at the same time, the area of the imperial palace in Tokyo, which, to give you an idea of its size, I think I, could, I, I, think I used to lap it in about 15 minutes. Um, that was worth more than California. Right. In terms of the valuation of real estate. And that was all driven by both the household sector and the, the, the corporate sector getting involved in both share market speculation with marginal loans and uh, property market, property speculation with mortgages. Japanese went out to having 99-year mortgages. So you'd sign up on a mortgage which would indebt your great-grandchild um, to finish off paying the mortgage. And then it's all been downhill from there. So they peaked it. They had, they had peak rate of growth of debt in 1990, literally came to an end right on the very last day of 1990. Uh, then you had uh, debt itself peaking in about 1993, 94. And over the last 20 years, they've gone from a debt level of 225% of GDP, this is private debt, to about 170%. So they're now back in the range that America's been. But that whole period, the credit growth, which was a fundamental part of Japan financing investment in new technology through the Kiretsu system came to an end. So the country's been stagnant for 25 years. So now that's what, yeah. exactly the same situation America and UK now got themselves in. Right, and then that would, which sort of gets me back to that first question about how important is growth? Because, I mean, if we look at J- uh, Japan's GDP, it shrank 0.6% in the, f- the first quarter of this year, which sounds like it should be catastrophic. And yet we don't hear about, you know, stories of, of hardship coming from, from Japan. They are clearly muddling through, despite the fact they've got no growth. In fact, negative growth. Yeah, they've also had... 
a declining population level. So it's really, in terms of what happens to the employment of the country, the per capita rate of growth is more important than the absolute rate of growth. And because Japan's in the not quite unique situation, but still rare situation of the declining population, that 0.6 decline uh, in total growth is less than a 0.6 decline in per capita. Mm. But it'll still have an impact. I mean, I'm not saying Japan is a, is a, is a growth uh, a beacon at the moment e- either, but it's it's gone through its debt crisis. It is still in the same situation America uh, is in overall. So the growth is incredibly fragile from the financial side, and uh, that's one factor. The other one that matters, and this is a brand not not so much brand new, but it's starting to bite, and that is the capacity to actually produce more goods one year than the next, which is what economic growth comes down to, based on the capacity to exploit energy and what's called the energy return and energy investing investment. And that eroi um, has been declining as the last century and a half has gone on because we've exploited all the extremely high uh, energy return and energy invested um, oil, uh, things like you know the original oil fields and so on, mm. and we're now starting to go back into you know if you the, the reason we have so it's such like diminishing returns on 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 our energy extraction in effect. Diminishing returns is one way to describe it. Economists have bastardised and, and 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 ruined that particular concept, but. What it amounts to is that uh, when we first tried to get oil out of the ground, it was literally you know, aim a shotgun trying to shoot a rabbit and you, you establish an oil oil empire in the, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies manner. Uh, now you go for something like what was the what was the one that uh, blew up in the Gulf of Mexico? Well, the Deepwater Horizon, I think it was the B, the BP oil platform that blew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're down, you're down, you're down one or two kilometres uh, below this below sea level, and you're drilling, you know, another. Two or one or three kilometres through the bedrock of the of the ocean to try to reach a pocket of oil, which going to explodes up the column. Uh, but the amount of energy you've got to do to do that is dramatically higher. So, if you go back to um, the early days, the Pennsylvania oil uh, when oil was first, I think it was covered in Pennsylvania. I think that was the first time it was it was found um, and and exploited as a commercial. Uh, commercial venture that had an energy return and energy investing of something of the order between 100 and 300 to one yeah because it just shoots out the ground i mean now we're you know we're now we're resorting to shale oil which is a a very energy intensive and labor intensive uh project in itself so okay so that's so that's so that's that's the other factor that's the fact number two yeah Yeah. so we're running out of or it's becoming less efficient for energy so so what is the upshot of all of this because we have this complete focus on growth if you know we're, we're sort of told if uh, I remember the um, an Australian Prime Minister years ago saying, if we can't get four percent growth, we might as well give the game away. But I mean, so Let's what? If he does that, that'd be a great way to get rid of him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is Paul Keating I'm talking about. That was years ago. But if we're not, I mean, if Com- we don't C- get four percent growth, so what? Yeah. Well, what what we what we have is because economic because we have focused so much on growth and not upon distribution we'll ignore distribution when we know that distribution got far more unequal um, the excuse has always been don't worry about the distribution because the, because more growth will make a, a rising tide lifts all boats and frankly it's true that the rising tide has not lifted all boats and uh, a lot of people are drowning in the rising tide so it, the growth has let us ignore distribution when distribution has got to be extremely uh, unequal and this is this is part of the dilemma we're now in. Uh, we're now at a point where I believe, in terms of the energy return and energy investment, in, in a genuine sense, we're going to face energy rationing at some point in the near future. And for that reason, uh, the inability to 
generate further growth is going to bite really, really hard because you can no longer say, let's use growth as a way to avoid income distribution. It, it'll become absolutely crucial that we take that into account. Right. So, I mean, the idea is so long as everybody was doing a little bit better, even if some people were doing a lot better, uh, we could at least say, well, everyone's doing better, therefore growth is a good thing. But if, if we if we get to the stage where we're not mm. getting growth, then some people start going backwards uh, while other people may hold their position, and that doesn't look quite so good. That's right, and that's where we're, we're starting to see it now. It becomes an issue because, you know, your, your excuse for avoiding the issue is now disappearing. Right, so what's the answer to all of this then? If, if distribution is the issue, if, uh, if uh, we had a, a good distribution of income, does that mean we wouldn't need uh, growth at all or quite so much growth? Well, I I think I think we have a real dilemma because when you look over the long term, the the, the, defin- in the this is why I've been doing doing work on the relationship between energy and GDP, uh, because when you look over the very long term, if you go back to the early 1700s, which is far as far back as American data goes back on energy consumption per head and effectively GDP per head, you find there's almost a linear relationship between the two. In other words, increasing GDP at the aggregate level, however it might be distributed inside the country, has been fundamentally increasing use of energy. Now, that has worked for the last two centuries, quite literally two centuries, uh, because we have been well below the planetary limits for one and a half of those two centuries. But for the last half of the last century, we've been getting closer and closer to planetary limits. This is I'm a, I'm a great fan of the limits to growth study back from the 1970s. And... And understand a bit about thermodynamics as well, which most of the people who think uh, and what they call AGW anthrop- anthropogenic uh, global warming is a left wing conspiracy. It's a left wing conspiracy led by the laws of thermodynamics, no. uh, which, so far as I'm aware, don't have political slant to them. <laughs> so. The, this this is the don't you hate it we, the way we the, are facing, don't you hate the way science and nature teams up with the left? That's just typical. Isn't gangs it? on us, yeah, yeah. bastards, yeah. <laughs> left wing conspiracy. That bloody, you know, one plus one equals two is, a, is obviously a left wing conspiracy. Um, so th- this this is the dilemma. We we can't continue with growth, and uh, as we have been doing it, because growth means you're using more energy. Using more energy means we're generating more waste, and that's the second law of thermodynamics. Try arguing away out of that one, Tony Abbott, um, or Lord Mockton for that matter, and. And if we're getting to the stage where the, the pollution we're pumping into the planet in terms of both carbon dioxide but also the other pollutants, the waste, the plastics and so on and so forth, we're hitting planetary limits. We have to take a step back from them. Mm. We take a step back, that necessarily means growth has to fall, uh, has to go negative actually for potentially for quite some time. And if you're going to go negative with growth, you certainly can't say the homeless have to eat less. Uh, there, there has to there, clearly the distribution issue can't be avoided anymore. So the central banks, of course, you know, are, are, are onto the fact that uh, energy is an important part of uh, GDP, particularly oil, because they'll look at, uh, well, oil prices, for example, contribute to inflation. If we uh, if they see inflation go up, then they go, oh, we've got to do something about this. So we lower interest rates in the hope that that's going to kick up growth. If they kick up growth, of course, then that's going to increase demand for energy, which means there's more demand for those, that oil, which is already being squeezed, which is why the prices went up in the first place. So it's a bit of a, 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 a cycle that's just going to continue with prices getting higher and higher for oil as we struggle to try and get this growth. Well, the central banks have actually got some consciousness of the whole issue of their role in climate change now as well. Actually, a couple of conferences. I've been invited to actually I've yet to 
get to the stage having time to write a paper for uh, about the role of central banks in climate change because, again, they're realising that yet those feedback effects are becoming so serious they simply can't talk in terms of an equilibrium model anymore, uh, which is large from their thinking before the financial crisis is all the equilibrium terms, adjust interest rates to control the rate of inflation, et cetera, et cetera, and, and get a nice stable system. They're quite conscious, quite a few of the banks are quite conscious of the fact that we are approaching planetary limits. We are post post we are past planetary limits, and they have to have some role in enabling a transition to more, um, less carbon-generating energy mining systems. But at the same time, the danger there lies that, uh, again, this is an area which is very, very vague uh, because of how it's pretty badly defined. The energy return and energy investing of solar and uh, and wind and and wave and so on is starting at the starts has started low and is going going high oil was the other way around it started high and it's going low um to replace it you have to get energy sources that don't generate the carbon so at least that particular form of pollution is cut out of the system but when you're doing it you're starting off with uh, solar panels which used to give uh, an energy return energy investing of the order of about five to one and calculations by people like uh, charles hall one of the people who led this whole area of, of working out the relationship between energy and economics uh, argued you can't even consider having a sophisticated civilization i.e one where you can play xbox for nearly some part of the day um with less than an error of seven to one now the reason it's confusing is because energy return and energy invested uh it includes what, what has problems at the stage of when you define what your energy input is because sometimes people say, well, I'm defining the energy input as the entire energy needed to go into a facility, including decommissioning at some time in the future. Mm. Now, if you don't decommission it, you get more energy out. And humans, frankly, have been pretty damn hopeless at decommissioning oil, uh, you know, oil power systems, coal power systems, anything. They simply leave them there to rot at a later stage. Now, if we do the same thing with solar panels, the error rate actually ends up being higher. So it's, it's a bit of a, a fudgy area, but it does say we, we, if we, if we, we the, the real dilemma, dilemma is we can't simply switch off um, hydro, which we, here, why do we keep on doing? We can't switch off coal and switch on solar and completely replace one with the other and have no shortfall in the amount of energy available. There will be a period of shortfall, almost certainly. But and that's what that's a that's another reason why the growth uh, growth solution to everything can't continue indefinitely into the future. But if you if if we're getting you know down the track less return on the energy invested, then that's that is going to show up in terms of us paying higher energy prices for the consumer or for the businessman. It's just going to become a, a bigger expense for their business, which pushes up the cost of production, which presumably then pushes up the price they charge, which adds to inflation, which was my point, is when the central bank goes, oh, my God, yeah. inflation's picking up. We've better, we better do something about it. We've better drop interest rates. Oh, we can't do that because the next are buggery anyway. Yeah, and this is the other question too. What, I mean, price is a rationing system. This is one way to think about it. And uh, if, if, if you have a shortage of the commodity and you therefore have pressure, demand pressure on buying the, the diminished supplies of the commodity, then price is supposed to ration that. But will it be price that actually rations it or will it be an absolute fall in our capacity to pay for it in the first instance? Because, again, you can't produce output without using energy. If you can't get the energy, the output will fall. Uh, it's a question. It, it may be price that adjusts, but it may well be output that adjusts. And we suddenly find that the amount we, we are getting at, at different income levels 
uh, drops. And so prices might not fall, incomes may fall, at the, because we're talking at the aggregate level now. And this is one of the dilemmas we may face in the next decade to two decades. If it really does, we do really get a decline in our capacity to provide the energy that our industries need, we may find ourselves in a World War II rationing situation in terms of the amount of energy we can devote to producing output for us to consume versus the amount of energy we have to devote to building new power sources that don't generate the problems the current power sources generate. So we started, I mean, my first question was, you know, why do we have this focus on, on growth to see how well an economy is, is doing? Is it, is it the right measure? I mean, you're now saying, well, uh, it's not the right measure. And hey, guess what? We're not going to see it at the levels we have in the past before because of this shortage of energy and therefore the, high, the higher price of energy, in effect. So we're going to have to somehow yeah, and, 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 adjust yeah. our approach to all of this. Yeah, and, the, the, and that's partly work like Kate Raworth, on what she called the donut economy, is part of that to say that you simply can't, uh, if you just quantify everything and say the, the rate of economic growth per se is all that matters as you measure it, then you ignore other issues about the level of pollution, the uh, level of social cohesion, uh, the availability of, of, of essential trace trace elements. Helium, for example, on the planet is a trace element, not a trace element in the sun, but it's rather hard to get it from the sun. Um, so there are various uh, elements of what she calls a, with the donut idea she has is an inner circle where if you're getting less than, you don't, if you don't make it to the, from the hole in the donut to the to the rim, then you're in a situation of poverty, and that's a large part, not a large, but well, actually at least one quarter of the planet is in that situation. But it used to be more, but that's our expansion in the level of uh, of output per head has got 75% of the population roughly out of being in the hole of the donut to within the donut itself. But you go on the other side, you're actually depleting the central uh, resources and one colleague of mine from Australia happens to be one of the world's leading experts on topsoil says that in the casual extrapolation that they do with the rate of topsoil loss uh, if you work it at the aggregate planetary level which of course is going to be a fallacy some parts will uh, diminish faster than others some will not be diminishing at all he said the, I remember the conversation I had with him about five or so years ago the current projection that particular scientific community is making is we'll run out of topsoil in about 2040. Now, if you run out of topsoil, you run out of food, period. Mm. You can't produce, you, you, you can't plant your wheat on rock. But literally, that's the rate of depletion of topsoil. And he was so, worrying about the bees. So it's going to be the, it's going to be the topsoil yeah. and the bees working together against us, unless it's some left-wing yeah. conspiracy of nature again, siding with, uh, with the yeah. lefties. But uh, yeah. so is, is, the, is the upshot then that... Um, that we need to um i mean it seems like you're saying well we therefore need to focus more on distribution because if you get to a stage where we have an energy shortage then that might be bad for people who are very wealthy because they have to pay more for their energy but it could be catastrophic for sections of society who can't afford it at all who do end up starving or or or, uh, or having no power in their home for example yeah and then at that point social cohesion breaks down completely because yeah. you only accept the level of inequality if you can still survive at the bottom end of the scale if being at the bottom end of the scale means starvation uh, then people tend to behave in not what you might want to call inverted commas rational ways of no. course they're totally revolutional for that point of view yeah yeah Re- 
revolutional ways rather than rational. And my God, those bloody left-wingers are back at it again. Yeah, there we are again. That's right. Just because they're starving to death. Uh, can't get so, rid of the bastards, can't so you? So starving to death. That'd do, be a good do idea. Do you think this is uh, exactly much solves the problem, doesn't it? Except, of course, then, the, the, mm. then you, all the stuff that you make, you've got no one to buy it. That's a bit of a problem. You have to think that one through perhaps a little bit. But it, if, to produce it as well, which is another yeah, story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there we are. Well, you've got machines to do that. So perhaps that's less, less important. But if, um, so maybe we just lose half the population. But I mean, it, I mean, it's a serious point. I mean, how, over what sort of time frame are we talking about, do you think? The next 20 to 50 years. That's the scary thing because it's in the, it, it's certainly going to be in the, in the lifespan of at least, you know, half the demographic for our program. Uh, that that's going to happen in their lifespan. And this is where the limits to growth is such an important study. Actually, we should make a link on the, on the page to the limits to growth study because you can download the PDF of it. Mm. And as crude and as simple as it was, it looked at all the feedbacks that exist between different fundamental elements of a, of a, a planetary economy, the, number of resort, you know, the amount of minerals in the crust, the uh, amount of, of pollution that the actual biosphere can absorb, the population level you've got, the amount of food population it eats, the industrial output and so on, and said if you put these all together within the constraints of what we currently know about our resources and so on, uh, then we are going to hit one form of a barrier or another unless we control population growth starting from about the the mid-1980s and... Uh, and put effort into pollution abatement from about the same time period. We did neither. So uh, I think we're now living in the twilight days of what's called the the standard run of the limits to growth, and that gave, uh, in terms of its rough predictions, somewhere between 2030 and 2070. Uh, serious consequences for the planet, for, the, for our for our social system on the planet's ecology. So I'm interested that you said that there are some progressive uh, central banks that are starting to think this way and looking at the impact of uh, of energy on the uh, the economies and the fact that it might not be a, a never ending resource. Out of interest, are they major central banks? Are they like Europe and the Fed and uh, the Bank of England? Or? Yes, no, not the Fed, not the Fed. Unfortunately, right. not the Fed. But yes, European central banks in particular. Uh, European central bank is actually having a conference on this front pretty shortly. The uh, the uh, Dutch central bank has already had a couple of conferences on this front. So they are they are looking at what can they do to help enable the monetary system to help. Uh, facilitate more rapid adjustment to non-carbon generating power systems. Right. But so of it is co- happening. But of course, everyone still has that focus on GDP, which we're saying is the wrong focus. Mm-hmm. So if we're taking into account everything that we've been talking about for the last 20 or 25 minutes, if we're looking for one overriding measure for the for the health of an economy, what should that measure be? I don't think you have one measure. This is uh, you, could, you could try to build another index, which gives you more realistic uh, measure taking into account the damage you know, with GDP on the uh, positive uh, on, on the on the increase in output, negative on the d- depletion of the capacity of the planet to absorb pollution, that sort of thing. Uh, you could potentially do that, but I don't know that one number is going to cut it. You have to, and this is where again Kate Wirt Raworth work is very nice, talking about a donut which I think has seven segments to it, and you've got to cover all those se- seven segments, including things like non-reproducible. Uh, trace elements, which I think phosphate, uh, not, tra- not trace elements, but trace um, chemicals, ones which we can't reproduce easily, uh, as well as overall things like carbon limits, um, you know, a wide range of factors. You have to look at them all together and try to get some sort of weighting system. If you did that, you'd be saying we've been going backwards potentially since the 1970s.
But how do you police that? How do you? I mean, that then you start looking at if you're if you're trying to put it into the financial system. This is why, uh, or into the into the economy, into the into the way we operate. This is why, of course, we looked at ideas like having um, taxes introduced, you know, carbon taxes, for for example. There's no way in the world you can get people to change their behaviour without forcing it, because as we know, there are vast proportions of the population that believe climate change, for example, is just some massive conspiracy. So they're not going to change their behaviour for yeah. the good of the planet. They're going to need to have it enforced in some way. Yeah, and the same dilemma applies in terms of trying to get a, 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 a composite measure when you're living in a capitalist economy, where the fundamental measure in a capitalist economy is how much does it pay and how much do I make? Yeah. So the monetary side of capitalism gets in the way of being able to work because if you're going to impose any, any limits on that so it doesn't do damage to species diversity, for example, um, it, that is just impossible through a strict, simple monetary system. And again, when you think about how when capitalism evolved, which was, you know, it's, you're talking in the, in the, in the 16 to 1700s, becoming absolutely vibrant in the, uh, in the early 1800s, that is a time when planetary limits simply did not apply. So we didn't even have to think about that. And what we've had now is about 10, 15 generations of people who didn't need to worry about that. You worry about the pulling of If you go back to Smith's period, the, the phrase dark satanic mills, I think, was actually first proposed by, I think, Wordsworth. I've got to check my poets there. Mm. But dark satanic mills described... What it was, it was, uh, it was the words Scotland, to Jerusalem. Right? I don't know whether that's where it started from. And did yeah, these feet yeah, in ancient times yeah. walk on England's pastures green? And uh, was the Holy Lamb of God something, something, these dark satanic mills? I think that's where it came yeah. from. Yeah, no, that, so the, the, that was localised in the sense it was happening just where the industry was. Now the dark satanic mill is the planet. And when you get to that scale, you simply can't rely upon uh, a system where it's possible to, as one of my neighbours once said, privatise your profits and socialise your losses. And, uh, and, and therefore you can't just have a straight capitalist system anymore. You've got to say, let's... What else? How else can we modify it? Taxes being a very clumsy way to go about that. Um, and I think in this particular case, the country that I expect to do best out of this is only a, a country with a totalitarian streak to it, like China. <laughs> well, and, and, but they are forced down that road, of course, because of pollution, which is uh, why they've uh, it's been necessary. But, but they're big enough. They're big. Hmm. With 1.5 billion people in the country, 1.4 billion people, and the area of land they're responsible for, China is big enough to see it happening. What is local to China is, is almost global. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, that's one of its advantages. You can actually see it at that scale. So I'm not sure where we're getting with this, except for the fact that it sounds, yeah. a, bit de- it, it sounds a bit depressing that uh, growth is going to slow because uh, we're not going to meet our energy needs. Uh, we know that uh, people at the bottom end are going to suffer as a result of that unless we change the system, but the system won't change because we are too wedded to capitalism, pure capitalism, and uh, as every year gets goes by, we seem to be more wedded to an even purer form of capitalism. We're, we're certainly not, you know, mm. there's not a lot of talk about mixed economies these days. Uh, the the purer, the better, it seems. Yeah, and that's one of the, again, the, the mono uh, monocultural way of thinking that capitalism tends to encourage. It's all about the bottom line. It's only about the bottom line when there's no feedback. And the thing is, we now live in a world dominated by feedback effects unless we modify our society to cope with those feedbacks we won't have a society in the first place so um, that is the real dilemma there i still come back to seeing reducing private debt as a as a major element here because you what you actually need to bring about the transformation so we actually can survive 
on the planet uh, is a dramatic increase in our investment in in in, um, in power generation systems that are non-carbon based. Yeah. And you're not going to get that when the money's going to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs direct. Uh, we've got to get as much of that cash as we can back in the productive economy and enable you know, firms and, and capitalists to be developing and innovating uh, you know, improving the solar technologies, improving the rollout of them, the state building those systems as well as the private, the private groups, um, changing our transmission systems so they can cope with people generating power on their on their roof house tops here because at the moment it, it works like a, a dam system. You're trying to push water uphill if you try to distribute from houses back again. All sorts of things like that take you know, national-level coordinated responses and we are nowhere near being ready for it mm. but if we had less money going to the financial sector and more to the real economy we might actually have more of that being done in the first place yeah well, that's not going to happen in the short term either because the one of the consequences of slow growth and you know we've, we've seen it for so long now is low interest rates and uh, if we have low interest rates then obviously uh, we have people buying stuff buying more assets uh, pushing up house prices which means more money is going to the financial sector so uh, it's, it's sort of helping that in balance isn't it it's making it worse yeah 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 that's it's not a this is you know once you realize that economic growth is not the be all and end all uh because it will end all if it if it, if it is remains the be all uh once you realize that then there are no simple solutions right all right well good to talk at least we've that's uh, a clever twist of phrase i like that i like that absolutely i could see your mind working though i was with you all the way along uh, good to talk steve we'll catch you again very soon okay mate And next time, we're going to look at mortgages. Uh, Is a big mortgage, is that dead money? Does it slow growth in the economy? How much faster would growth be if we weren't tying up so much of our money in mortgages? Or does that mean that the money that is paid in mortgages just goes to somebody else for them to spend? Uh, We'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. 